0: Welcome to the Nankoverse, it's the 14th of Feb 2022, which is also known as the Valentine's Day. I want to wish everyone a good Valentine's Day, a happy Valentine's Day, and I hope that you spread the love and the good vibes to everyone around you and your partner. I think it's always a good time to admire your partner, whoever you're with, whoever has decided to stay with you for the rest of their lives, or it could be a partner in transition, whatever. But at the same time, It's a day for love. It's a day to express love, to express friendship and camaraderie and admiration for the people around you. And uh, yeah, it's actually quite fascinating. I was wanting to search a little bit about the history of Valentine's Day and how this really came about. It says that the history is slightly vague, although it says that Saint Valentine was a priest who defied emperor's orders and secretly married couples to spare husbands from war. I'd want to go a little bit into the history of the Valentine's Day and bring it to my listeners. February 14th, commonly known as Valentine's Day, is the most awaited day of the year for any couple, when love is in the air and all we see is red and white, the colours resonating the feeling of love and affection. But, I mean... (laughs) For the uninitiated, the day gets its name after a mysterious saint. Though it is believed that it could owe its origin, to more than one person, its true origin is still very vague. According to the legend, the day is celebrated to mark the death anniversary of St. Valentine, who died in mid-February in 2070 AD. It is said that St. Valentine was a priest who defied Emperor's orders and secretly married couples to spare husbands from war. He was reportedly beheaded by Empress Claudius II Gothicus. Mm, that doesn't end very well for Mr. Valentine, but I hope uh, all of you guys are enjoying this day and uh, not being too harsh on yourself if you don't have a partner, most importantly, because a lot of us might not have partners to celebrate Valentine's with, but that should not make you feel bad about yourself. The origin of Valentine's can be traced back to Lup- Lupicalia, a Roman festival for fertility. It's spelled as L-U-P-E-R-C-A-L-I-A, Lupercalia, a Roman festival for fertility. It is also believed that the day was celebrated as an attempt by the church to add a religious twist to the Lupercalia festival, of course. The festival was dedicated to Faunus, the god of agriculture, Romulus and Remus, the founder of Rome. During the celebrations, men and women were paired based on a lottery system and most of them eventually ended in marriage. Damn. At the end of the 5th century, Pope Gal- Galasius I decided the time of Lupicalia celebrations as the date to celebrate St. Valentine. It is also believed that St. Valentine was able to miraculously heal the blind daughter of his jailer. Yeah, right. Another legend says that a bishop named St. Valentine of Terni was the true namesake of the holiday, although it is believed by the people that they are the same person. Saint Valentine became known as saint, as a pa- patron saint of love. It was also said that he used to wear a ring with Cupid on it, the symbol of love, that helped soldiers were able to, were, that helped soldiers were able to him. What does that mean? That helped soldiers were able to him. A poem written by medieval author Geoffrey Chaucer in 1381 is considered the origin of the modern celebration of love by historians. It connects Saint Valentine to the celebration of love, solidifying the be- the belief in the history of the festival. Something really, <laughs> something really interesting just happened while I was reading about the Valentines. My mic broke. Literally, the wire of my blue Yeti microphone came off, and he even he is not able to bear this entire Valentine talk bro. It's like just give me a break. <laughs> But for a lot of us, it's a fun day. It's a day where we get to express our love. And I hope everyone's having a great day. Even if you're not with a partner, just love yourself. And even if you're with a partner, love yourself. And uh, another poem is is something that I want to follow this up with. And this is something written by a man called Jocko Willick, who happens to be a former Navy SEAL. And um, he has written this book called Discipline Equals Freedom. Field Manual, MK Mod 1, The Expanded Edition. And in this book, there is a collection of poems and one of them, the title of which is Fear of Failure. Fear of Failure. Fear of Failure can keep you from taking the risk. It can leave you sitting there, paralyzed into not taking action. And that is obviously bad. But I don't want you to overcome fear of failure. I want you to be afraid of failure. Fear of failure is good. Fear of failure will keep you up at night, planning, rehearsing, going over contingencies. Fear of failure will keep you training hard. Fear of failure will stop you from cutting corners. Fear of failure will keep you working, thinking, striving and relentlessly trying to be more prepared for battle. So I want you to be afraid of failing. I I fear failure. But more important, I want you to be horrified terrified of sitting on the sidelines of doing nothing, of sitting on the the sidelines and doing nothing. That is what I want you to be afraid of. Waking up in 6 days or 6 weeks or 6 years or 60 years and being no closer to your goal, you have made no progress. That is the horror. That is the nightmare. That is why you really need to be afraid of. That is what you really need to be afraid of, being stagnant. So, get up and go take the risk take the gamble take the first step take action and don't let another day slip by so important don't let another day slip by you have to be gentle with yourself but at the same time pursuing goals is very important it's important to make sure that we are fearful of failure so that we are able to get things done and move our asses because sometimes that is the most important thing the most important thing is to to just pursue your goals every day and make sure that you're making progress and if you're not then it's good to sit and do a little bit of recalibration uh, about what exactly is it that you're trying to achieve and going out there and making it happen is the most important thing things things don't happen while you just sit and not do anything you got to make things happen And on that note, I would want to take the news of the day towards completion because I want to read the news as well and I want you guys to get informed with me. So let's go. So the first news for the day is something of uh, financial importance to to the country and India's biggest company is about to go public. The Life Insurance Corporation files papers Which is it's set to begin, it's it's set for the biggest Indian IPO ever. LIC of India, which is the life insurance corporation of India, has filed its draft share sale prospective with the capital markets regulator SEBI, paving the way for India's largest initial public offering. There is also a possibility that LIC will become India's most valuable listed company. Topping Toppling Reliance Industries Limited after listing on the stock exchanges, LIC plans to sell 316.25 million shares, which is about 5% of its total equity base, said the draft red herring prospectus filed by filed with SAB, which is the Securities and Exchange Board of India. The 65-year-old LIC has a total equity base of 6.32 billion shares. Damn. It's a really big company. LIC uh, invests in all major mutual funds and uh, big companies. It has a sizable amount of uh, equity that it holds as an insurance bearer. The IPO is fully an offer for sale, which means that the proceeds will go fully towards the government and help it reach its disinvestment target. In the union budget presented earlier this month, the government had pegged disinvestment receipts at 78,000 crore for this financial year, they want to disinvest to the tune of 78,000 crore. Okay. According to the offer, offer document, a portion of shares not exceeding 5% of the offer will be reserved for employees. Similarly, another portion not exceeding 10% will be reserved for ili- eligible policy hold- holders. So, if you're an LIC policy holder, you might get some shares, dude. Nice. These are Indian citizens holding LIC policies as on the date of a draft red herring prospective. The pricing of the IPO will be decided in due course, two days before the opening of the public offer, according to prospectus. It is also added that policyholders and employees may get a discount compared to the price offered to the public at large. A minimum 35% of issue will be reserved for retail investors the prospectus also said that the embedded value of lic is rupees wow this is a staggering number it says the embedded value of lic is f- five five lakh thirty nine thousand six hundred and eighty six crore five lakh thirty nine thousand six hundred and six hundred and eighty six crores embedded value is a yardstick used to measure the value of a life insurance company. It is the sum of the present value of all future profits from the existing business and shareholders' net worth. Insurance regulator IRDAI cleared the LIC IPO last week. Private life insurance companies are currently trading at 2-4 to times their embedded value. Using the same yardstick, LIC's market capitalization could be between 10.8 lakh crore and 21.6 lakh crore. Currently, the most valuable firm in India is Reliance Industries with a market capitalization of 16 lakh crore. Uh, A 5% sale even at valuation of 10.8 lakh crore will net the government rupees 54,000 crore. It will be it will be close to the to thrice the rupees eighteen thousand three hundred crore raised by one ninety seven communications, which is Paytm in its IPO last year. LIC is the largest life insurer in India with a sixty four point one percent market share in terms of premium, a sixty six point two percent market share in terms of new business premium, a seventy four point six percent market share in terms of number of individual policies issued as well as the number of individual agents which comprised 55% of all individual agents in India as at March 31 2021 said the prospectus LIC is the last largest asset manager in India with managed assets worth rupees 39.6 lakh crores managed assets worth 39.6 lakh crore as of September 30 2021 LIC's assets under the management as of March 31, 2021, are more than 3.3 times higher than the total AUM of all private life insurers in India. The corporation may allocate up to 60% of the QIB, which is the Qualified Institutional Buyers, portion to anchor investors on a discretionary basis. One-third of the anchor investor portion will be reserved for domestic mutual funds. Kotak, Goldman Sachs, Axis Capital, ICICI Securities, Bofa securities jm financial Citigroup, jp morgan namura and sbi capital markets are the merchant bankers to the issue the ipo is expected to be to conclude before the end of the fiscal year march 2022 so if you're an investor it's always a smart idea to look out for a company like the lic which could have its market cap at about huh, its its embedded value is this is so insane, 5,39,686 crore, its it's uh, market capitalization could be between 10.8 lakh crores to 21.6 lakh crores which could make it the biggest uh, company in India after Reliance. So yeah, do apply for the LIC IPO and see if you're lucky enough. And if you're a policyholder, there's a higher chance you might get some. People who are invested in market in uh, investing in the market would be so excited about this IPO. I am as well, to be honest. LIC has been part of our lives forever, and uh, the amount of power that these guys hold is insane. So it's it's quite fascinating to see the, them getting into the market, and uh, let's see how the share goes up and down in circles. Who knows? It's all fugazi Sometimes I feel as uh, Leonardo DiCaprio said, in the Wolf of Wall Street. Woo! Moving on, there's another news that I feel is is of extreme importance for our domestic security, and it talks about how the government has approved Rs. 26,275 crores for police modernization. The issue of police modernization is a double-edged sword, because you want the police force to be modern, and you want more policemen to... For, to, we want more policemen on the street, man. Let's be honest. Some A lot of people are scared of policemen because they have not had, like, good experiences with them. But at the same time, as a society, we do need police people to have the modern equipment they need to be able to do their jobs well. And uh, I, th- I personally feel this could be a good news. Uh, I'd like to read this news anyway and bring it to you guys. It says, The government has approved the umbrella scheme of modernization of police force. For the next five years, with a financial outlay of rupees twenty-six thousand two hundred and seventy-five crore, more than rupees eighteen thousand crore of this money will go towards security-related expenditure in JNK, Okay, here's the rub: left-wing extremism areas and northeast. Okay, maybe they need it there. Even uh, cities like Delhi need more cops and uh, better modern modern cops so that uh, you know th- i read a statistic somewhere that there is one cop for every every 2600 people in our city which is just insane and so many of the cops are sent for vvip duties they don't really take care of the people and 18000 out of this 26000 crores will be uh, allocated towards jammu and kashmir left will extremism areas left wing extremism areas and northeast Quote, the approval for the period 2021-22 to 25-26 moves forward the initiative of Union Home Minister Sri Amit Shah to modernise and improve the functioning of police forces of states and union territories. This scheme comprises all relevant sub-schemes that can contribute to modernization and improvement, a Ministry of Home Affairs statement said. According to MHA, under the five-year plan, provision has been made for internal security Law and order, adoption of modern technology by police, assisting states for narcotics control and strengthening the criminal justice system by developing a robust forensic setup in the country. Quote, the scheme for modernization of state police forces has a central outlay of rupees 4,846 crore, the statement said. The approval includes a central outlay of rupees 2,080 crore. To develop a operationally independent and high-quality forensic sciences facilities in states/slash union territories for aiding scientific and timely investigation through modernization of resources. That's a good move. It's very important. Incidentally, in the 2022-23 budget presented by Finance Minister Nirmala Sitaraman, the central outlay for quote, modernization of forensic capacities in the coming. Fiscal year alone is rupees 8,976 crore. That's a lot of money. 8,976 crores for modernization of forensic capacities. I do not know what they were budgeting, um, if it's like prudent or not. But at the same time, uh, it is a good sign that forensic capacities are increased so that cases are investigated scientifically and not uh, using a dunda the mha said a central outlay of rupees 18839 crore has been earmarked for security related expenditure for the union territories of jnk insurgency affected northeastern states and left wing extremism affected areas quote with the implementation of national policy and action plan for combating lwe i think lwe is left wing extremism and left wing violence incidents have come down drastically. To further pursue this accomplishment, six left-wing extremist-related schemes with central outlay of 8,689 crore have been approved. These schemes include special central assistant assistance to most LWE-affected districts and districts of concern to consolidate the gains," the statement said. Left-wing extremism seems to be uh, an agenda for the government to tackle and uh, I hope that they spend the money properly for police modernization and not just in these areas but also in modern town and uh, modern town areas in, in Delhi and cities like Mumbai where there's so many people and criminals are taking over man so I wish our police the best I hope they get the equipment they need and uh, forensic teams need to get better for sure. Moving on, I would want to bring to you an uh, editorial written by Ashok Gulati and Reena Singh. who uh, Ashok Gulati, sir, happens to be the Infosys Chair Professor for Agriculture. And um, Reena Singh is Senior Fellow at ICRIER, which, happened, which is an organization I do not know about. But this talks about the need to rethink power and fertilizer subsidies and reorient MSP and procurement policies towards minimizing greenhouse gas emissions. That's a really interesting article. I would love to read this. In the backdrop of the 2070 carbon neutrality target set by India at the COP26 in Glasgow, the union budget for 2022-23 has listed, quote, climate action and energy transition as the four priorities for the Amrit Kal. Finance Minister Nirmana Sitaraman made a few announcements in this context, including an additional allocation of rupees 19,500 crore for solar PV modules. She also talked of co-firing of 5-7% of biomass pellets in thermal. She also talked of co-firing 5-7% of biomass pellets in thermal power plants, quote, sovereign green bonds and a battery-swapping policy. These are positive steps toward ma- towards making the energy and transport sectors less polluting. Her announcements on agriculture, however, were rather, rather limited. Agriculture contributes 73% of country's methane emissions. India has kept away from recent EU-US pledge to slash methane emissions by 30% by 2030, despite the country being the world's third largest emitter of methane. The finance minister did talk of chemical-free natural farming in a 5 kilometer wide corridor along the river Ganga, support for millets, and increased domestic production of oil seeds and kisan drones. These were welcome steps but they do not assure us that the environmental damage already wrought by the sector can be undone. The damage largely a result of the various kinds of subsidies on urea, canal irrigation and power for irrigation, as well as minimum support prices, MSP and procurement policies concentrated on a few states and largely on two crops, rice and wheat we also know that as of january 1st the stocks of wheat and rice in the country central pool were four times higher than the buffer stock requirement in fact rice stocks with the fci which is the food corporation of india are seven times the buffer norms for rice damn this is despite the record distribution of rice in the pds and record exports of rice 17.7 mmt million metric tons in 2020 21. So we have more stock, more rice and wheat stocked up than we need to, four times. Um, it's quite fascinating. The financial value of these excessive grain stocks is Rs 2.14 lakh crore, of which 1.66 lakh crore is because of excess rice stocks, as per the economic cost of rice and wheat given by the FCI. Interestingly, the economic survey of 2021-22 gives an economic cost of rice and wheat higher than that reported by fci if one uses the survey's fi- figures the value of excess stocks jumps to rupees 2.56 lakh crores with rice accounting to approximately 2 lakh crores all this does not just reflect the inefficient use of scarce capital the amount of greenhouse gases embedded in these stocks is also large as per the national ghg inventory greenhouse the gases that is Inventory, the agriculture sector emits 408 million metric tons of carbon dioxide. Equivalent and rice cultivation is the third highest source of greenhouse gases in Indian agriculture after enteric fermentation. 54.6%. I wonder what enteric fermentation means. Uh, does anyone of you know what enteric fermentation means? This is the first time I'm hearing this. Enteric fermentation. Fermentation. Enteric fermentation is a digestive process by which carbohydrates are broken down by microorganisms into simple molecules for absorption into bloodstream of an animal. Oh, it's like when they say that animal takes fa- animals takes farts. That's the reason that climate change is happening. Okay, this is um, not funny, but it is. Enteric fermentation also leads to greenhouse gases, about 54.6%, and fertilizer use, which is 90%. 19% Paddy fields are anthropogenic sources anthropo- Anthropogenic sources of atmospheric nitrous oxide and methane, which have been reckoned as 273 and 80 to 83 times more powerful than carbon dioxide in driving temperature increases in 20 years. The amount of methane emitted from paddy fields of India is 3.396 teragram per year, or 71.32 million metric tons carbon dioxide equivalent. Two important points need to be noted here. First, India does not report nitrous oxide emissions in its national greenhouse gas inventories. India does not report nitrous oxide emissions in its national GHG inventories. There is scientific evidence that intermittent flooding reduces water and methane emissions but increases nitrous oxide emissions. Thus, lowering of methane emissions through controlled irrigation does not necessarily mean l- net low emissions. Second, emissions due to burning rice residues, application of fertilizers, production of fertilizers for rice, energy operations like harvesting, pumps, processing, transportation are not accounted for in the GHG emissions in rice production. A study by Wetter et al. 2017, used the Cool Farm Tool CFT cool farm tool model to estimate annual ghg emissions by crops from production to the farm gate it reported emissions of 5.65 kg carbon dioxide equivalent of ghg per kg of rice moreover paddy fields require about 4000 cubic meters of water per ton of rice for irrigation i would like to repeat this moreover Paddy fields require about 4,000 cubic meters of water per ton of rice for irrigation. That's a lot of water—400 cubic meters. I don't even know how to like put this if I had to see it visually. Even if half of the per, even if half of that percolates back to the groundwater, excess stocks of 46 million metric tons of rice embed about 92 billion cubic meters of water as well as 260 million metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent according to the imf the world needs a carbon tax of dollar 75 per ton by 2030 to reduce emissions to a level consistent with a two degree celsius warming target india does not have an explicit carbon price yet but many countries have begun to implement carbon pricing sweden leads the pack with a carbon price as high as $137 per tonne of carbon dioxide equivalent, while EU is at $50, $50 per tonne of carbon dioxide equivalent. It is high time for India to announce indicative carbon pricing and create a vibrant carbon market to incentivize green growth in Amrit Kal. The Economic Survey 2122 22 points out that the country is overexploiting its groundwater resource particularly in the Northwest and some parts of South India. This is primarily due to paddy cultivation on 44 million hectares. This has helped India achieve food security, but its now it's time now to save groundwater and the environment. This calls for revisiting policies to subsidize power and fertilizers, MSP and procurement and, re- and reorient them towards minimizing greenhouse gas emissions. It's now time to save groundwater and the environment. This calls for revisiting policies to subsidize power and fertilizers, MSP and procurement and reorient them towards minimizing greenhouse emissions. Farmer groups and the private sector can be mobilized to develop carbon markets in agriculture, both at the national and international levels, which can reward farmers in cash for switching from carbon-intensive crops such as rice To low carbon intensive crops or improving farming practices in rice systems to lower greenhouse gas emissions. Such a move towards quote net zero agriculture will give India a climate smart agriculture in Amritkal. And if we want and if we can protect productive levels, productivity levels with a low carbon footprint, it will help India to access global markets too. It's a fascinating article about how greenhouse gases subsidies and fertilizers and electricity is leading to its own problems sometimes we create the solutions and the solutions become problems and it's good to discuss these things and actually understand some of the statistics like the numbers used here are actually quite hard to comprehend like he's talking about 4,000 cubic meters of water per ton of rice for irrigation first of all how much is a ton of rice damn Like, if you buy a few kgs from the market, that also seems like a lot of rice. But at the same time, uh, they're talking about carbon tax, which uh, I think could be uh, useful, but definitely not for the smaller farmers because they're anyway committing suicides. And um, it only only future will tell how much uh, a carbon tax could help in reducing greenhouse gases, especially in a country like India, where... You don't really want to like follow the same rules as uh, Sweden because Sweden usually always gets its gets its uh, things done in a very very um, pragmatic manner. But a country like India is a little more chaotic. Um, we need to come up with rules for our own uh, based on our own societal structures, and also uh, make sure that we do not overexploit the resources that we have and still have a productive agricultural sector. Moving on, I would like to read an editorial written by Pratiksha Baxi, who's a sociologist based in Delhi and she has authored Public Secrets of Law: Rape Trials in India, the book. And it talks about decongesting prisons. Decongesting prisons seems like an important topic and I would definitely want to do a deep dive in this. Question of mass incarceration of undertrial prisoners needs a public health and gender sensitive approach. During the pandemic, the mass incarceration of undertrials led to a human humanitarian crisis in overcrowded prisons. Prison officials struggled to prevent mass contagion among inmates and staff. Even as thousands fell ill and many died, prisons instituted their own lockdown rules by quarantining court fresh admissions creating quarantine zones suspending jail manuals and prohibiting visitors there is no lockdown on the entry of more under trial prisoners while their rate of exit from prison has decreased since the onset of the pandemic this will take a lot of empathy because sometimes we think of criminals as these people who deserve to be there but at the same time they're humans as well just like you and me Um, Some of them have done wrong things. A lot of times people are also sent in jails for crimes that they never committed. Um, That's a story for another day. Today, the devastating impact of the highly contagious Omicron variant in prisons is normalized by invoking lockdown curbs. Prisons have not completed vaccination programs and conditions have worsened as occupancy rates increase. Court visits are suspended. Lawyers cannot visit their clients in person. Prison visits have stopped, even if families and visitors are vaccinated and follow COVID-appropriate behaviour. Experts tell us that the main reason for, quote, overcrowding in our prisons is due to the mass incarceration of pre-trial prisoners. The penal policy of the state has not focused on decriminalisation. Instead, it has resulted in a shocking 31.8% increase in the incarceration of the number of under-trial prisoners, an increase in imprisonment of detent use by 40.1% from 2015 to 2020. Jail is, the ru- Jail is the rule rather than the exception. The prison statistics of 2020 show that more than 70% of such undertrial prisoners are from marginalized classes, castes, religions and genders. Under trials, uh, people in jail just gives me a little bit of goosebumps, you know, because they haven't been proven guilty yet, but they are in jail. Jail happens to be um, the rule rather than the exception, which is an extremely disturbing uh, fact. In 2020, as the national lockdown was announced, the Supreme Court of India issued directions to set up high powered committees in each state to decongest prisons. In contagion of COVID-19 virus in prisons, the Supreme Court of India held that, quote, the requirement of decongestion is a matter of concerning health and right to life of both the prison inmates and the police personnel working. However, most HPCs did not adopt classification based on the right to life or health, nor were these gender sensitive. HPCs are high-powered committees. Most HPCs treated decongestion as an administrative issue. One might even argue that the HPC classification adversely impacted bail outcomes and reduced the categories of released adopted by the barely functional under-trial review committees. The 2020 Prison Statistics Report supports this analysis in two ways. First, it reveals that as compared to 2019, Quote, the release of convicts has declined by 41.2%, and the release of undertrials has declined declined by 19.6% in 2020. Second, as compared to 2019, the number of undertrial prisoners increased by 11.7%, and the number of detainees increased by 11.4% in 2020. Detainees. The pandemic saw the creation of new dockets. Which were mainly related to violations of lockdown law under section 188 of IPC, which is disobedience to order duly promulgated by public servant. Damn. In 2019, there were 29,469 cases registered under this section. In 2020, this increased to a staggering 6,12,179 cases. Other laws were also used, including local laws, leading to forty-three thousand six hundred ninety more cases being registered in 2020 as compared to 2019. No amnesty has been announced for these offences, nor has the misuse of the court epidemic laws seen judicial review. As prisons instituted a lockdown on public accountability, the rates of custodial deaths have increased by 7% in 2020. Custodial deaths really shake my shake my consciousness. So-called unnatural deaths which include suicides, accidents and murders in prisons increased by 18%. There is no information on why 56 inmates died in 2020. These figures prove that the lockdown rules in prisons increase custodial violence and disease. I can only imagine, like there was so much increase of violence in families, let alone jails. These lockdown rules, unfortunately, are now normalized by the fiction that the HPCs, which is the high-powered committees, will decongest and oversee the pandemic-induced crisis. Public interest appeals to the committees to adopt a public health and gender-sensitive classification to decongest the most overcrowded prisons in the country were rejected. Take the example of the approach to incarcerating pregnant women in prisons. In May 2021, the Delhi HPC directed the pregnant under trials or mothers with children will be released on interim bail for three months. While releasing pregnant women for three months, the HPC did not factor in which trimester each woman was in. If a woman was in labour or delivered a baby three months later, she was expected to surrender or go to court. Man. We really forget. People need help. Pregnant under trials who fell into the HPC's exclusion clause, such as foreign national prisoners, were not released. Even though most foreign national prisoners are from global south, the exclusion clause is not seen as a racist classification. The disaster law was not applied to prohibit such racial discrimination between the classes of pregnant women. Nor did the courts rule unequivocally that custodial childbirth and incarcerated pregnancy is a specific form of cruel and inhuman punishment that is inflicted on women in prisons. Or or honor the UN Bangkok rules which state that, quote, non-custodial means should be preferred for pregnant women during pre-trial phase. Surely it is high time that governments and courts adopt a public health and gender-sensitive approach to the question of mass incarceration of undertrial prisoners. The participation of prison watchdogs in bringing accountability to these dark custodial spaces must be restored. The decline in the rate of release of undertrials from prison and the increase in custodial deaths must be named as a humanitarian crisis, and the bureaucratic approach of the HPCs should be reviewed. Courts must privilege prisoners' experiences of court lockdown prisons rather than pay lip service to dead letter reform. It is time to end the law's attachment to inflict cruel, inhuman and degrading punishment on pre-trial prisoners. The mass incarceration of pre-trial prisoners must be abolished. This is true, the mass incarceration of pre-trial prisoners must be abolished. Surely, institutionalized if indifference to the cruel and inhuman conditions of custody must be abhorrent to any society. This is a really fascinating article written by Pratiksha Baxi. Moving on, I would want to read this uh, editorial written by Arun Prakash and Ashok Hukku. Arun Prakash, sir, is a former Indian naval naval chief and Ashok Hukku was a major general in the Indian Army. And they have written about none none other than our... Big nemesis and competitor, a country that we need to learn from and also keep our eyes on, which is China. Dealing with China, Delhi's naive optimism, evident since 1962, must give way to pragmatism. That's true. Well, before it recklessly triggered World War II, Germany had provided enough evidence of its hegemonic intent and disdain for international conventions. In September 1938, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain announced on return from the Munich conference with Hitler, quoting, I believe it is peace for our time. His gullibility was shown up a year later when Hitler, ordering the invasion of Poland, remarked, quote, Our enemies are little worms. I saw them at Munich. Wow. I love the way this article has started by talking about the 1938-1939 time when the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain was so gullible in thinking that I believe is I believe it is peace for our time, and less than a year later, Hitler says our enemies are little worms. I saw the man Munich. Um, India's quote Munich moment came in 1962 with the egregious misreading of China's intent by a naive political leadership, leading to a humiliating military defeat in the Sino-Indian War. On October 20, 1962, India's 7th Infantry Brigade was overrun by the 11th Division of the People's Liberation Army at Namkachu. The Indian soldiers fought gallantly, often to the last man and the last bullet, but in vain, Similar actions took place elsewhere in Nefa now Arunachal, and Ladakh. The route lasted all the way up to November 20, when the Chinese declared a unilateral ceasefire and withdrew 20 km behind the la- line of actual control. The LSE had been described by PM Zhu and Lai in 1959 as confirming to quote the so-called McMohan Line in the east. And the line up to which each side exercises actual control in the west, India did not agree with this definition, but its failure to diplomatically contest and militarily defend this line gave China physical control of 38,000 square kilometer of the Aksai Chin plateau in 1962. Subsequently, China has claimed 84,000 square kilometer of Arunachal Pradesh as part of "quote southern Tibet." This is probably no precedent where two belligerents after fighting a border war have left their disputed boundary undetermined and unmarked for 60 long years. Indian politicians and diplomats used to derive satisfaction from having delinked the border issue from the rest of the Sino-Indian relationship and rejoiced as bilateral trade, though adversely balanced, Zoomed past the hundred billion dollar mark. It is adversely balanced. Um, we need to keep, uh, we need to stay aware of that. But to a layman, it appeared that by neglecting to pursue a negotiated demarcation of the LSE and by glossing over repeated territorial incursions as, quote, differences of perception, our security elite had played into China's hands. The government's stand that, quote, no Indian territory has been occupied by China, seen in the light of the May 2020 sanguinary clash in Galwan. Galwan and the 22-month Sino-Indian military standoff has confused the citizens and raised many concerns. In Ladakh, if the Chinese have indeed not encroached on our territory, then why are our troops unable to access previously established, quote, patrolling points, And what exactly are the, quote, friction points that find frequent mention in communiques? In Arunachal, are the freshly built Chinese enclaves and the towns renamed by them located in Indian territory? Finally, what has been the outcome of 22 meetings of the special representatives and why have military commanders failed to achieve disengagement, leave alone de-escalation in 14 meetings? These conundrums indicate that from Jawaharlal Nehru's desperate optimism, encapsulated in the quote Hindi-China-Bhai-Bhai Nostrum, to PM Modi's sustained engagement with Xi Jinping, Beijing has deviously managed to camouflage the true motivation behind its actions, as well as its long-term intentions vis-a-vis India. New Delhi, on its part, has failed to evolve a strategy to counter China's designs or even issue a white paper to explain the dimensions of this challenge to Parliament and the public. China, having amply demonstrated its penchant for salami-slicing territory as well as its disdain for international law, leaves India with little room for complacency, compl- complacency? Complicency or for vainly hoping that so-called legacy issues will resolve themselves with time. It is therefore vital to deconstruct China's elaborate charade and to halt the covert by steady hemorrhaging of Indian territory. While jingoism has its place in politics, we must be realistic enough to understand that neither conquest nor reconquest of territory is possible in a nuclearized South Asia. India's parliament and government should now accord utmost priority to establishing settled, viable, and peaceful international boundaries all around. Only then will India be able to focus on nation-building and socio-economic development without interruption. A few pragmatic options offer themselves for resolving the Sino-Indian imbroglio. That's such a beautiful word they've used. Imbroglio. I don't even know what that means. Um... A few pragmatic options offer themselves for resolving the Indo Sino Indian imbroglio. I'm gonna search this. Imbro. It has a bro in it. Woo! Imbroglio means an extremely confused, complicated, or embarrassing situation. Imbroglio. 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 Nice. (laughs) For resolving the Indian Sino imbroglio. First. India could exhume and revive the offer reportedly made by PM, Zin, PM Zhu and Lai in 1960, seeking strategic depth for Highway 219 that links Xinjiang with Tibet across Aksai Chin. Zhu had suggested negotiating a quote, quid pro quo, wherein China would recognize the McMahon line in exchange for India making certain adjustments in the West. This would call for considerable political boldness and diplomatic Adroitness, man, they are using some really heavy ass words here. Ad adroitness. Have you guys ever heard this word? Adroit, Adroit adroitness, adroitness. 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 Cleverness or skill. Nice. Adroitness. Beautiful word. Diplomatic adroitness. A second option would be for India to bring sustained pressure to bear on China on the diplomatic, diplomatic, trade and psychological fronts and await results. At the same time, Indian forces must, must remain poised for swift direct action, seizing unoccupied territory and holding on to it as bargaining chip. The surprise capture of the tactical heights on the Kailash range by a special forces brought severe psychological pressure on Beijing and must serve as a template. While skirmishes and physical confrontations may take place, it is considered most unlikely, for several reasons, that China would take on India in a major or even limited conflict. A third option lies in the maritime domain, where opportunities exist both for power balancing via partnerships as well as direct naval action. China's economy and industry are overwhelmingly dependent on uninterrupted seaborne trade and energy. Thus, China's Indian uh, China's Indian Ocean sea lanes constitute a jugular vein that India could threaten via trade warfare. In this context, the Andaman and Nicobar Islands suitably fortified and militarized could become maritime bastions dominating the Malacca straits. For more strategic advantage could, accru- could accrue if India were to shed its political coyness and offer Port Blair as a logistic watering hole to selected friendly navies, the f- the last option would obviously be to maintain the status quo, with fifty thousand to sixty thousand troops deployed at high altitudes and engage in sustained military slash diplomatic parlays hoping for useful outcomes, with an unpredictable Chinese threat hanging over our heads like a sword of Damocles. Damn, Damocles, sword of Damocles. This, is a, this was a really beautiful article that has articulated so many of my thoughts about China and how India needs to figure it out with China so that, you know, at least we're starting to, so that we can start to focus on our societal and uh, societal development, most importantly. We spend so much money on militarization of our forces, which is needed. Let, don't get me wrong. It is needed to, like, make our make our army more modern and better and spend money on it. But at the same time, if we were not having all these disputes and this insecurity of knowing which is our territory and which is theirs, we would not have to do this. There can be a situation like Norway and, you know, where Scandinavian Scandinavian countries fought with each other for many, many centuries, but they were able to figure it out in time. Hopefully, we're able to do the same with China and Pakistan. Moving on to a piece of news that um, gets on to explaining something that I really want to get uh, more knowledge on which is the Uniform Civil Code. Uniform Civil Code a lot of us have heard uh, of and it probably seems like this one bullet that sorry this one pill that is going to solve all the problems of India. However I feel like there are nuances to it that I personally don't understand and I would love to read this article out for everyone and myself. It says, The Issues in Uniform Civil Code, written by Faizan Mustafa. Um, He's an expert in judicial laws and constitutional laws. The Uttarakhand CM has promised a uniform civil code for the state if the BJP is voted back to power. Here's a look at what the constitution says about UCC, previous attempts to reform personal laws and the way forward. Many appear to believe that the UCC, which is the Uniform Civil Code, would remove all inequalities in one stroke and create a gender-just ju- society. But it is important to understand that, quote, formal equality cannot bring about a radical change. What society needs is, quote, substant- substantive equality. I don't know what that means. Dhammi has promised to set up a committee for preparing a draft UCC, But the promise of a UCC is not part of the 60-page BJP manifesto for Uttarakhand. The BJP manifesto for the 2019 Lok Sabha elections had stressed there cannot be gender equality without a UCC and promised a UCC would be drafted, drawing from the best traditions and harmonize them with modern times. This, This implies that the UCC would include the best provisions of all personal laws. Um, The discussion of UCC goes through the Hindu Code Bill. The Hindu Code Bill committee was constituted in 1941, but it took 14 years to pass the legislation. And not as one uniform act, but as three different ones. Hindu Marriage Act, 1955, Hindu Succession Act, 1956, and Hindu Adoption and Maintenance Act, 1956. Moreover, not all reforms could be incorporated because of the opposition from the Hindu right. Even Congress leaders such as Sardar Vallabhai Patel and Patabi Sita, Sita Ramaya, M. A. Ayangar, Madan Mohan Malviya and Kalashnath Karchu opposed such reforms. In the debate on the Hindu court bill in 1949, 23 of the 28 speakers opposed it. In 1949, the Hindu the Hindu right formed an All-India an All Anti-Hindu Court Bill Committee under the le- leadership of Swami Karpatriji Maharaj Karpatraji, Ka- Ka- Karpatriji Maharaj, who justified unregulated polygamy. Gita Press Kalyan Magazine published a number of articles that favoured polygamy, opposed the daughter's right to inheritance and questioned the Constituent Assembly's right to legislate on religious matters. Shyama Prasad Mukherjee, a late founder of the Bharatiya Jana Sangh, said in parliament that instead of the Hindu court bill, the government should be bringing a UCC. While there was a substance in this argument, reforming the majority com- communities' laws is easier than reforming those of the minorities. Several Muslim countries, including Pakistan, have been able to reform Muslim laws, but not the laws of their minority communities. Dr. BR. Ambe- if we should not be comparing ourselves to Pakistan, anyway, uh, Dr. BR. Ambedkar had to resign as law minister on September 15, 1951. President Dr. Rajendra Prasad threatened to return the bill or veto it. PM Jawaharlal Nehru yielded. The bill was not passed. When eventually passed after several years, it did not give daughters a share in a Hindu joint family's property. This amendment came in 2019 during the UPR regime. Thankfully enough reading article 44 article 44 of the constitution says the state shall endeavor to secure for citizens a uniform civil code throughout the territory of india the definition of court state as given in the article 12 includes the government and parliament of india while article 44 uses the phrase state shall endeavor other articles in the Directive Principles chapter use expressions such as in particular "in particular," strive, shall take steps, shall promote with special care, shall in particular direct its policy, shall regard its primary duty, shall be obligation of the state, etc. All of these mean that the duty of the court is far greater in other Directive Principles than in Article 44. While well, Article 43 mentions that the state shall endeavour by suitable legislation, The phrase by suitable legislation is absent in Article 44, which indicates that the framers did not intend enactment of uniform civil code by a single legislation. Diversity in Personal Law It is erroneous to assume that India has different personal laws because of religious diversity. As As a matter of fact, the law differs from state to state. Under the constitution, the power to legislate in respect of personal laws rests with both parliament and state assemblies. Preservation of legal diversity seems to be the reason for inclusion of personal law in the con- concurrent list entry number 5 had uniformity of laws been the primary concern personal laws would have been included in the union list with the parliament having the exclusive jurisdiction to enact laws on these subjects bringing amendments to central personal laws with enactments such as the Hindu marriage act is possible under entry 5 but this power cannot be stretched to include enactment of a uniform civil code for the whole of India. Once the legislative field is occupied by parliamentary legislation, states do not have much freedom to enact laws. Such laws would require presidential assent under article 254. It is also a myth that Hindus are governed by one uniform law. Marriage among close relatives is prohibited in the north, but considered auspicious in the south. Lack of uniformity in personal laws is also true of Muslims and Christians. The constitution itself protects the local of Nagaland, Meghalaya and Mizoram. As an example, take Goa, often cited as a state that already has a UCC, but Hindus of Goa are still governed by the Portuguese family and succession laws. The reformed Hindu law of 1955-56 is not applicable to them. An unreformed Shastric Hindu law on marriage divorce adoption and joint family remains valid the shariat act of 1937 is yet is yet to be extended to goa and the state's muslims are governed by portuguese laws portuguese law as well as shastric hindu law but not by muslim personal law even the special marriage act a sort of progressive civil code has not yet been extended there While the Uttarakhand CM favours a UCC to ensure equality, reforms in Hindu law have not completely removed gender discrimination. The amount of land actually inherited by Hindu women is a small fraction of what they are entitled to under reformed Hindu law. Even when they inherit land, it is invariably much less than than an equal share. The The power of will is used to give entire property to sons. The way forward if the Uttarakhand government returns to power, one way forward could be to constitute a Muslim law, law. One way forward could be to constitute a Muslim law reforms committee, tribal and indigenous law Reform committee, Christian and Parsi law reforms committee, just like the Hindu law reforms committee formed in 1941. Based on their recommendations, it could take the reforms process forward. The state would also need a Hindu law committee, as some of the existing provisions of codified Hindu law such as solemnization of marriage, satpati, kanyadan, joint family and tax benefits, absolute testimony to powers, etc., testamentary powers, etc., may not find a place in the UCC, and provisions like Dava or Nika Nama are to be incorporated in UCC as per BJP's 2019 manifesto. Are Hindus of Uttarakhand, who are 83% of the population, ready for these reforms? The goal of a UCC should ideally be reached in piecemeal manner like the recent amendment on the age of marriage a just code is far more important than a uniform code i think the way this article ends is really cool uh, it says a just code is far more important than a uniform code uh, this article has been quite uh, i would l- love to r- listen to it again and actually go through some of the things that the sir has talked about in this and what are your thoughts on a ucc let me know in the comment section i would love to know your thoughts moving on there is a really interesting news which is talking about uh indian government's move to incentivize the setting up of semiconductor fabrication units especially at a time when there is a global shortage of these semiconductors i think this is an extremely important uh, news development and i would love to go into this so there's been a nod to at least one global chip maker by March 31st, 2024 target for the first fab unit, which is a fabrication unit for creating semiconductors. The Ministry of Electronics and Information Technology is likely to target 2024 for the formal opening of country's first semiconductor fabrication unit, the senior government official said. The ministry plans to approve the application of at least one big global semiconductor fabrication company before March 31st and give the winning bidder 700 to 750 days to complete the construction of the new unit of the new unit. An official said, apart from the main factory unit, a plan for on-site housing of all employees may also be approved. Quote, we have actively engaged with all the leading companies over the last 2 months. We reached out to Apple and other big companies such as Samsung and understand how they operate their mega factories across the world. We will be bringing those learnings to India," one of the officials said, asking not to be named. Senior officials of the Metis have, over the last few weeks, also met officials from the Labor Ministry to understand and finalize the change in regulations needed to approve factories where 40,000 to 1 lakh people can work and live in the same premises quote Owing to the safety hazards so far this has not been allowed where employees live in close proximity to the factories we have been discussing with the labor ministry the necessary changes are possible with a simple administrative action from them they have assured us that they will look into the changing rules and regulation plans regulations even if the law even if the law is needed even if the law is needed to be changed For the Housing on Campus Plan, METI has had meetings with few states like Karnataka, Odisha, Andhra Pradesh, Tamil Nadu, Maharashtra, and Madhya Pradesh. Initially, any one factory from one of these states will be chosen to run a pilot of the Housing on Campus Plan, one of the Ministry officials said. Last December, the Cabinet had approved a Rs. 76,000 crore plan for semiconductor and display manufacturing ecosystem in the country. As a part of the plan, the center has lined up incentive support for companies engaged in silicon se- semiconductor fabs, display fabs, compound semiconductors, silicon photonics, sensor fabs, semiconductor packaging and semiconductor design. As a part of the scheme, for setting up of silicon complementary metal oxide semiconductor, fabrication units that manufacture technology node of 28 nanometer or lower will get up to 50% of the project cost as incentive. While for above 28 nanometer, but up to 45 nanometer, the center will provide 40% of the unit cost. Very interesting. So the center is giving incentives for people to come and set up semiconductor fabrication units in India, which I think is a great move. It's very important for India to be self-sufficient in these things. These are the technologies of the future, and we definitely need the manufacturing in India. But at the same time, there are uh, a lot of administrative rules that need to be changed, especially from the labor ministry. And I'm pretty sure this might happen hopefully soon. The government's move to incentivize the setting up of semiconductor fabrication units assumes significance at a time when there is a global shortage of semiconductor products and large chip like Intel, TSMC, Texas Instruments, etc. are looking to add capacity. In India, Tata Group has expressed plans to foray into semiconductor manufacturing. As per government estimates, electronic chips worth Rs 1.1 lakh crore were consumed in the country during 2020. All of this demand was met through imports since the country does not have, at present, have any electronic chip manufacturing units. I think this is a really interesting development and I would love to track this in the future. With this, I would like to bring to an end today's episode of The Nankoverse. And I hope you guys enjoyed. I hope you guys listened till the end. And whoever's listened till the end, you guys have to press the subscribe button. Come on, do it. And uh, I wish everyone a great day ahead. And I hope you stay happy, hydrated and give hugs to the people around you. Sorry if the audio was bad today because of a lot of work going around my house. But at the same time... um, I want to wish everyone a great day and a great life. Jai Hind.